0: Chapters twenty-eight, twenty-nine, and thirty, of *The Moon and Sixpence*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads *The Moon and Sixpence* by William Somerset Maugham. Chapter twenty-eight. The explanation came a week later. It was about ten o'clock at night. I HAD BEEN DINING BY MYSELF AT A RESTAURANT, AND HAVING RETURNED TO MY SMALL APARTMENT WAS SITTING IN MY PARLOR READING. I HEARD THE CRACKED TINKLING OF THE BELL, AND GOING INTO THE CORRIDOR OPENED THE DOOR. STRUVE STOOD BEFORE ME. CAN I COME IN? HE ASKED. IN THE DIMNESS OF THE LANDING I COULD NOT SEE HIM VERY WELL, BUT THERE WAS SOMETHING IN HIS VOICE THAT SURPRISED ME. I KNEW HE WAS OF ABSTEMIOUS HABIT, OR I SHOULD HAVE THOUGHT HE HAD BEEN DRINKING. I led the way into my sitting-room, and asked him to sit down. "'Thank God I've found you,' he said. "'What's the matter?' I asked in astonishment at his vehemence. I was able now to see him well. As a rule, he was neat in his person, but now his clothes were in disorder. He looked suddenly bedraggled. I was convinced he had been drinking, and I smiled. I was on the point of chafing him on his state. I didn't know where to go, he burst out. I came here earlier, but you weren't in. I dined late, I said. I changed my mind. It was not liquor that had driven him to this obvious desperation. His face, usually so rosy, was now strangely mottled. His hands trembled. Has anything happened? I asked. My wife has left me. He could hardly get the words out. He gave a little gasp and the tears began to trickle down his round cheeks. I did not know what to say. My first thought was that she had come to the end of her forbearance with his infatuation with Strickland, and, goaded by the latter's cynical behaviour, had insisted that he should be turned out. I knew her capable of temper, for all the calmness of her manner, and if Struve still refused, she might easily have flung out of the studio with vows never to return. BUT THE LITTLE MAN WAS SO DISTRESSED THAT I COULD NOT SMILE. MY DEAR FELLOW, DON'T BE UNHAPPY, SHE'LL BE BACK. YOU MUSTN'T TAKE VERY SERIOUSLY WHAT WOMEN SAY WHEN THEY'RE IN A PASSION. YOU DON'T UNDERSTAND. SHE'S IN LOVE WITH STRICKLAND. WHAT?! I WAS STARTLED AT THIS. BUT THE IDEA HAD NO SOONER TAKEN POSSESSION OF ME THAN I SAW IT WAS ABSURD. HOW CAN YOU BE SO SILLY? YOU DON'T MEAN TO SAY YOU'RE JEALOUS OF STRICKLAND? I ALMOST LAUGHED. "'You know very well that she can't bear the sight of him.' "'You don't understand,' he moaned. "'You're an hysterical ass,' I said a little impatiently. "'Let me give you a whiskey and soda, and you'll feel better.' I supposed that for some reason or other, and heaven knows what ingenuity men exercise to torment themselves, Dirk had got it into his head that his wife cared for Strickland, and with his genius for blundering, he might quite well have offended her, so that, to anger him, perhaps, she had taken pains to foster his suspicion. "'Look here,' I said. "'Let's go back to your studio. If you've made a fool of yourself, you must eat humble pie. Your wife doesn't strike me as the sort of woman to bear malice.' "'How can I go back to the studio?' he said warily. "'They're there. I've left it to them.' "'Then it's not your wife who's left you.' It's you who've left your wife. For God's sake, don't talk to me like that. Still, I could not take him seriously. I did not for a moment believe what he had told me, but he was in very real distress. Well, you've come here to talk to me about it. You'd better tell me the whole story. This afternoon, I couldn't stand it any more. I went to Strickland and told him I thought he was quite well enough to go back to his own place. I wanted the studio to myself. No one but Strickland would have needed telling, I said. What did he say? He laughed a little. You know how he laughs. Not as though he were amused, but as though you were a damned fool, and said he'd go at once. He began to put his things together. You remember I fetched from his room what I thought he needed, and he asked Blanche for a piece of paper and some string to make a parcel. Strew stopped, gasping, and I thought he was going to faint. This was not at all the story I had expected him to tell. She was very pale, and she brought the paper and the string. He didn't say anything. He made the parcel, and he whistled a tune. He took no notice of either of us. His eyes had an ironic smile in them. My heart was like lead. I was afraid something was going to happen, and I wished I hadn't spoken. He looked round for his hat, then she spoke. "'I'm going with Strickland, Dirk,' she said. "'I can't live with you any more.' I tried to speak but the words wouldn't come. Strickland didn't say anything. He went on whistling as though it had nothing to do with him. Struve stopped again and mopped his face. I kept quite still. I believed him now, and I was astounded. But all the same I could not understand. Then he told me, in a trembling voice, with the tears pouring down his cheeks, how he had gone up to her, trying to take her in his arms, but she had drawn away, and begged him not to touch her. He implored her not to leave him. He told her how passionately he loved her, and reminded her of all the devotion he had lavished upon her. He spoke to her of the happiness of their life. He was not angry with her, he did not reproach her. "'Please let me go quietly, Dirk,' she said at last. "'Don't you understand that I love Strickland? Where he goes, I shall go.' BUT YOU MUST KNOW THAT HE'LL NEVER MAKE YOU HAPPY. FOR YOUR OWN SAKE, DON'T GO. YOU DON'T KNOW WHAT YOU'VE GOT TO LOOK FORWARD TO. IT'S YOUR FAULT. YOU INSISTED ON HIS COMING HERE." HE TURNED TO STRICKLAND. HAVE MERCY ON HER, HE IMPLORED HIM. YOU CAN'T LET HER DO ANYTHING SO MAD. SHE CAN DO AS SHE CHOOSES, SAID STRICKLAND. SHE'S NOT FORCED TO COME. MY CHOICE IS MADE, SHE SAID IN A DULL VOICE. Strickland's injurious calm robbed Struve of the last of his self-control. Blind rage seized him, and without knowing what he was doing, he flung himself on Strickland. Strickland was taken by surprise, and he staggered. But he was very strong, even after his illness, and in a moment, he did not exactly know how, Struve found himself on the floor. You funny little man, said Strickland. Struve picked himself up. He noticed that his wife had remained perfectly still, and to be made ridiculous before her increased his humiliation. His spectacles had tumbled off in the struggle, and he could not immediately see them. She picked them up and silently handed them to him. He seemed suddenly to realize his unhappiness, and though he knew he was making himself still more absurd, he began to cry. He hid his face in his hands. The others watched him without a word. They did not move from where they stood. Oh, my dear, he groaned at last, how can you be so cruel? I can't help myself, Dirk, she answered. I've worshipped you as no woman was ever worshipped before. If in anything I did I displeased you, why didn't you tell me? And I'd have changed. I've done everything I could for you. She did not answer. Her face was set, and he saw that he was only boring her. She put on a coat and her hat. She moved towards the door, and he saw that in a moment she would be gone. He went up to her quickly and fell on his knees before her, seizing her hands. He abandoned all self-respect. Oh, don't go, my darling. I can't live without you. I shall kill myself. If I've done anything to offend you, I beg you to forgive me. Give me another chance. I'll try harder still to make you happy. Get up, Dirk. You're making yourself a perfect fool." He staggered to his feet, but still he would not let her go. "'Where are you going?' he said hastily. "'Don't you know what Strickland's place is like? You can't live there. It would be awful!' "'I don't care. I don't see why you should. Stay a minute longer. I must speak. After all, you can't grudge me that. What is the good? I've made up my mind. Nothing that you can say will make me alter it. He gulped and put his hand to his heart to ease its painful beating. "'I'm not going to ask you to change your mind, but I want you to listen to me for a minute. It's the last thing I shall ever ask you. Don't refuse me that.' She paused, looking at him with those reflective eyes of hers, which now were so different to him. She came back into the studio and leaned against the table. Well, Struve made a great effort to collect himself. You must be a little reasonable. You can't live on air, you know. Strickland hasn't got a penny. I know. You'll suffer the most awful privations. You know why he took so long to get well. He was half starved. I can earn money for him. How? I don't know. I shall find a way. A horrible thought passed through the Dutchman's mind, and he shuddered. I think you must be mad. I don't know what has come over you. She shrugged her shoulders. Now may I go? Wait one second longer. He looked round his studio wearily. He had loved it because her presence had made it gay and homelike. He shut his eyes for an instant, then he gave her a long look as though to impress on his mind the picture of her. He got up and took his hat. No, I'll go. You? She was startled. She did not know what he meant. I can't bear to think of you living in that horrible, filthy attic. After all, this is your home just as much as mine. You'll be comfortable here. You'll be spared at least the worst privations." He went to the drawer in which he kept his money and took out several banknotes. I would like to give you half what I've got here. He put them on the table. Neither Strickland nor his wife spoke. Then he recollected something else. Will you pack up my clothes and leave them with the concierge? I'll come and fetch them tomorrow. He tried to smile. Good-bye, my dear. I'm grateful for all the happiness you gave me in the past. He walked out and closed the door behind him. With my mind's eye, I saw Strickland throw his hat on a table and, sitting down, begin to smoke a cigarette. So ends Chapter Twenty-Eight CHAPTER Twenty Nine. I kept silence for a little while, thinking of what Struve had told me. I could not stomach his weakness, and he saw my disapproval. "'You know as well as I do how Strickland lived,' he said, tremulously. I couldn't let her live in those circumstances. I simply couldn't.' "'That's your business,' I answered. "'What would you have done?' he asked. She went with her eyes open. If she had to put up with certain inconveniences, it was her own lookout. Yes, but, you see, you don't love her. Do you love her still? Oh, more than ever! Strickland isn't the man to make a woman happy. It can't last. I want her to know that I shall never fail her. Does that mean you're prepared to take her back? I shouldn't hesitate. Why, she'll want me more than ever, then. When she's alone and humiliated and broken, it would be dreadful if she had nowhere to go." He seemed to bear no resentment. I suppose it was commonplace in me that I felt slightly outraged at his lack of spirit. Perhaps he guessed what was in my mind, for he said, "'I couldn't expect her to love me as I loved her. I'm a buffoon. I'm not the sort of man that women love. I've always known that. I can't blame her if she's fallen in love with Strickland. You certainly have less vanity than any man I've ever known," I said. I love her so much better than myself. It seems to me that when vanity comes into love, it can only be because really you love yourself best. After all, it constantly happens that a man, when he's married, falls in love with somebody else. When he gets over it, he returns to his wife. She takes him back, and everyone thinks it very natural. Why should it be different with women? I dare say that's logical, I smiled, but most men are made differently, and they can't. But while I talked to Struve, I was puzzling over the suddenness of the whole affair. I could not imagine that he had had no warning. I remembered the curious look I had seen in Blanche Struve's eyes. Perhaps its explanation was that she was growing dimly conscious of a feeling in her heart that surprised and alarmed her. Did you have no suspicion before today that there was anything between them?" I asked. He did not answer for a while. There was a pencil on the table, and unconsciously he drew a head on the blotting paper. Please say so if you hate my asking questions. It eases me to talk. Oh, if you knew the frightful anguish in my heart! He threw the pencil down. Yes, I've known it for a fortnight. I knew it before she did. Why on earth didn't you send Strickland packing? I couldn't believe it. It seemed so improbable. She couldn't bear the sight of him. It was more than improbable. It was incredible. I thought it was merely jealousy. You see, I've always been jealous, but I've trained myself never to show it. I was jealous of every man she knew. I was jealous of you. I knew she didn't love me as I loved her. That was only natural, wasn't it? but she allowed me to love her, and that was enough to make me happy. I forced myself to go out for hours together in order to leave them by themselves. I wanted to punish myself for suspicions which were unworthy of me, and when I came back I found they didn't want me. Not Strickland, he didn't care if I was there or not, but Blanche. She shuddered when I went to kiss her, when at last I was certain I didn't know what to do. I knew they'd only laugh at me if I made a scene. I thought if I held my tongue and pretended not to see, everything would come right. I made up my mind to get him away quietly, without quarrelling. Oh, if you only knew what I've suffered! Then he told me again of his asking Strickland to go. He chose his moment carefully, and tried to make his request sound casual, but he could not master the trembling of his voice, and he felt himself that into words that he wished to seem jovial and friendly there crept the bitterness of his jealousy. He had not expected Strickland to take him up on the spot and make his preparations to go there and then. Above all, he had not expected his wife's decision to go with him. I saw that now he wished with all his heart that he had held his tongue. He preferred the anguish of jealousy to the anguish of separation. I wanted to kill him and I only made a fool of myself. He was silent for a long time, and then he said what I knew was in his mind. If I'd only waited, perhaps it would have gone all right. I shouldn't have been so impatient. Oh, poor child, what have I driven her to?" I shrugged my shoulders and did not speak. I had no sympathy for Blanche Struve, but knew that it would only pain poor Dirk if I told him exactly what I thought of her. He had reached that stage of exhaustion when he could not stop talking. He went over again every word of the scene. Now something occurred to him that he had not told me before. Now he discussed what he ought to have said instead of what he did say. Then he lamented his blindness. He regretted that he had done this, and blamed himself that he had omitted the other. It grew later and later, and at last I was as tired as he. "'What are you going to do now?' I said finally. What can I do? I shall wait till she sends for me. Why don't you go away for a bit? No, no, I must be at hand when she wants me. For the present he seemed quite lost. He had made no plans. When I suggested that he should go to bed, he said he could not sleep. He wanted to go out and walk about the streets till day. He was evidently in no state to be left alone. I persuaded him to stay the night with me, and I put him into my own bed. I had a divan in my sitting-room and could very well sleep on that he was by now so worn out that he could not resist my firmness i gave him a sufficient dose of veronal to ensure his unconsciousness for several hours i thought that was the best service i could render him so ends chapter 29 chapter 30 but the bed i made up for myself was sufficiently uncomfortable to give me a wakeful night, and I thought a good deal of what the unlucky Dutchman had told me. I was not so much puzzled by Blanche Struve's action, for I saw in that merely the result of a physical appeal. I did not suppose she had ever really cared for her husband, and what I had taken for love was no more than the feminine response to caresses and comfort which in the minds of most women passes for it it is a passive feeling capable of being roused for any object as the vine can grow on any tree and the wisdom of the world recognizes its strength when it urges a girl to marry the man who wants her with the assurance that love will follow it is an emotion made up of the satisfaction in security pride of property the pleasure of being desired the gratification of a household and it is only by an amiable vanity that women ascribe to its spiritual value. It is an emotion which is defenceless against passion. I suspected that Blanche Strew's violent dislike of Strickland had in it from the beginning a vague element of sexual attraction. Who am I that I should seek to unravel the mysterious intricacies of sex? Perhaps Struve's passion excited without satisfying that part of her nature, and she hated Strickland because she felt in him the power to give her what she needed. I think she was quite sincere when she struggled against her husband's desire to bring him into the studio. I think she was frightened of him, though she knew not why, and I remembered how she had foreseen disaster. I think in some curious way the horror which she felt for him was a transference of the horror which she felt for herself because he so strangely troubled her. His appearance was wild and uncouth there was aloofness in his eyes, and sensuality in his mouth. He was big and strong, he gave the impression of untamed passion, and perhaps she felt in him, too, that sinister element which had made me think of those wild beings of the world's early history, when matter, retaining its early connection with the earth, seemed to possess yet a spirit of its own. If he affected her at all, it was inevitable that she should love or hate him. She hated him, and then I fancy that the daily intimacy with the sick man moved her strangely. She raised his head to give him food, and it was heavy against her hand. When she had fed him, she wiped his sensual mouth and his red beard. She washed his limbs. They were covered with thick hair, and when she dried his hands, even in his weakness, they were strong and sinewy. His fingers were long. They were the capable, fashioning fingers of the artist and I know not what troubling thoughts they excited in her. He slept very quietly, without a movement, so that he might have been dead, and he was like some wild creature of the woods, resting after a long chase, and she wondered what fancies passed through his dreams. Did he dream of the nymph flying through the woods of Greece with the satyr in hot pursuit? She fled, swift of foot and desperate, but he gained on her step by step, till she felt his hot breath on her neck, and still she fled silently, and silently he pursued, and when at last he seized her, was it terror that thrilled her heart, or was it ecstasy? Blanche Struve was in the cruel grip of appetite. Perhaps she hated Strickland still, but she hungered for him, and everything that had made up her life till then became of no account. She ceased to be a woman, complex, kind and petulant, considerate and thoughtless. She was a menad she was desire. But perhaps this is very fanciful, and it may be that she was merely bored with her husband, and went to Strickland out of a callous curiosity. She may have had no particular feeling for him, but succumbed to his wish, from papinquity or idleness, to find then that she was powerless in a snare of her own contriving. How did I know what were the thoughts and emotions behind that placid brow and those cool gray eyes? but if one could be certain of nothing in dealing with creatures so incalculable as human beings there were explanations of blanche strew's behavior which were at all events plausible on the other hand i did not understand strickland at all i racked my brain but could in no way account for an action so contrary to my conception of him it was not strange that he should so heartlessly have betrayed his friend's confidence nor that he hesitated not at all to gratify a whim at the cost of another's misery. That was in his character. He was a man without any conception of gratitude. He had no compassion. The emotions common to most of us simply did not exist in him, and it was as absurd to blame him for not feeling them as for blaming the tiger because he is fierce and cruel. But it was the whim I could not understand. I could not believe that Strickland had fallen in love with Blanche Struve, I did not believe him capable of love. That is an emotion in which tenderness is an essential part. But Strickland had no tenderness either for himself or for others. There is in love a sense of weakness, a desire to protect, an eagerness to do good and to give pleasure, if not unselfishness, at all events a selfishness which marvelously conceals itself. It has in it a certain diffidence. These were not traits which I could imagine in Strickland. Love is absorbing. It takes the lover out of himself. The most clear-sighted, though he may know, cannot realize that his love will cease. It gives body to what he knows is illusion, and knowing it is nothing else, he loves it better than reality. It makes a man a little more than himself, and at the same time a little less. He ceases to be himself. He is no longer an individual, but a thing an instrument to some purpose foreign to his ego. Love is never quite devoid of sentimentality, and Strickland was the least inclined to that infirmity of any man I have known. I could not believe that he would ever suffer that possession of himself which love is. He could never endure a foreign yoke. I believed him capable of uprooting from his heart, though it may be with agony, so that he was left battered and ensanguined anything that came between himself and that uncomprehended craving, that urged him constantly to he knew not what. If I have succeeded at all in giving the complicated impression that Strickland made on me, it will not seem outrageous to say that I felt he was at once too great and too small for love. But I suppose that everyone's conception of the passion is formed on his own idiosyncrasies, and is different with every different person a man like Strickland would love in a manner peculiar to himself. It was vain to seek the analysis of his emotion. SO ENDS CHAPTER THIRTY